Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. So let's take a quick look ahead at all the nice little pearls that we've been covering this week. First off, we had part four on leadership, all about teams this week. After that, we had a spoon-feed review of epistaxis, then the number of days of antibiotics necessary for pediatric community-acquired pneumonia. After that, ketamine-only intubations, not as safe as just lidocaine. And then finally, rethinking the MI classifications, the slow rise of the occlusion MI. This, of course, is the audio version of all our past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the sunny Aaron Lacey, Aaron Hogan, and Clay Smith. So here we have the first article for you guys, which was titled Building Teams in Healthcare out of the Journal Chest. No matter how brilliant you are, no matter how talented, you just can't compete with a whole team of people. So you're going to be better as part of a team than on your own. If you like sports analogies, there's no shortage of catchy teamwork phrases out there for you. And really, medicine is a team sport. If you wanted to go it alone, well, maybe you should have practiced a couple hundred years ago. Nowadays, it's just not going to be possible. It's just not done. The authors of this paper covered four ways to build great teams, and we're going to give you a summary of each of those methods adapted to the emergency room. There are four key aspects in forming a team. They are establishing the culture, chartering the goals, clarifying the roles and responsibilities, and adopting an appreciative perspective. We'll dig into each point, but keep in mind that the ideal size of a team is five to ten people. Or, as Jeff Bezos from Amazon likes to put it, the number of people that can eat two pizzas. So, first step in building a great team is to establish the culture of your team. The foundation of a healthy team is respect for all the other team members. Being on time is a good way to show that you respect your team's time. Generosity is nice, it's surprising, it's disarming, and it shows that you care. Making a culture to, you know, bring some snacks or some food in can go a long way with a lot of people. Finally, psychological safety is absolutely crucial in a good team. Each person has to feel valued and safe to speak up. In the emergency department, every shift is like a little micro team within the broader emergency medicine team. Using everything that we just just mentioned, there's a few simple things that you can do to build a really positive culture for your team. To start off, try showing up a little bit early. And if you can, bring something to share with the rest of your group. Get to know your team members personally, not just what their jobs are at work, but also about their lives, who they are. This will help you a lot when it comes time to actively listening to their input and making them feel more comfortable and safer to speak up. So the second step in building a great team is to charter your goals. Creating a charter sounds a little bit old-fashioned, but I personally read a lot of medieval novels, so I thoroughly enjoy anything that sounds old-fashioned. So now, a charter is a document that establishes an entity, like a college or something like that. And this defines the rights and privileges that come along with it. In the emergency department, it's probably not going to be something nearly as formal, but you can ask your trainees and your colleagues what they want to learn on this shift, where they want to grow, and what's important to them. And then you should also try to be open about your own goals and things that you want to work on or things that you want to teach. The next step for building a good team is clarifying roles and responsibilities. Each member having a clearly defined role and the space to accomplish it gives everyone a lot of purpose on the team, and it makes them know that they're important and it avoids people wasting time and stepping on each other's toes. In the emergency department, be clear about who's doing what. Who's going to write the trauma notes? Who will run the code? Who's responsible for the airway when that ambulance arrives? Most jobs just need one person, divide and conquer. 
And then the final step in our little guide is to adopt an appreciative perspective. Medicine often involves a lot of thinking about the worst case scenarios, trying to see what the problem is and then, you know, where things are going wrong. This is great for working out your differential diagnosis or solving medical issues. Your clinical reasoning is probably going to be really on point. But where it isn't best is for team functioning. Instead of looking at what's wrong, you could get centered thinking about what more you could do right. The author of this article actually asks his team on day one to please tell him about the rotation coming on. If it were to succeed beyond their wildest dreams, what would happen? In the emergency department, perhaps instead of asking things like, you know, why are our patient metrics so poor? Instead, ask, what can we do to surprise, to impress our patients and make them really happy with their experience here? This reframes problems and can help come up with better solutions. So this article actually concludes our four-part series on leadership, and I am but the mouthpiece for our lovely author, Clay Smith, who has used all the excellent articles out of the journal Chess to bring you all these pearls of wisdom. So thank you, Clay, who is the leader of our team at the journal feed, and he does an excellent job. Next is the second article titled Epistaxis out of the New England Journal of Medicine. This review was a lovely summary of the evidence, which was able to provide a simplified approach to dealing with epistaxis in the emergency department. I'll distill it down even one step further and provide just a simple treatment algorithm. But if you're pining for more details, then you know where to go. You can go to our website, at the blog, or you can check out the article itself. So almost any patient comes in with epistaxis, and you're going to have to start with direct pressure. You're going to want to hold this for a solid 15 to 20 minutes, pinching the lower third of the nose. Leaning forward is nice. It can be a little bit more comfortable for the patient. And no peaking. There's going to be no peaking in this time slot. So you're going to want to wait all the way to the end of the 15 to 20 minutes to see if the pressure worked. If you peak every two to three minutes, it's just not going to work as well. If your bleeding stopped there, great. Awesome. You're done. If not, then it's time to get a better look. It's time to get out the rhinoscope. Suction away all the clots or have the patient lightly blow their nose. If you can see the source of the bleeding, great. Topical vasoconstrictors are a solid bet. There's moderate evidence to try some TXA at this point. Some studies seem to show that it's about as good as packing, but it's neither here nor there. It's not perfectly solid in the evidence. If these roots aren't your style and you've got a good look at what's bleeding, then cautery is quite effective. Electrocautery actually has a slightly lower failure rate than chemical cautery, but if all you got is silver nitrate, then that works too. If the nose is still bleeding, then you're going to have to move to anterior packing. Resorbable is more comfortable for patients typically, but if it's not available, then RhinoRapid is a good pick as a non-absorbable uh, interior pack. If anterior packing fails, then call ENT and consider posterior packing. Ligation and embolization are going to be your last resorts. They're very effective, but honestly, this decision is not going to be made up to you. And of course, if these patients are still bleeding, then they're going to need admission. If it's a posterior bleed that's severe enough to the point of transfusion or instability, then you're going to have to think about stopping anticoagulants and antiplatelets and consider reversal agents if that's necessary. Antibiotics for packing is still a hot topic, but most data seems to point towards it not being necessary. And that is our summary on epistaxis. In a spoonful, apply direct pressure for 15 to 20 minutes, no peaking, then hunt down the source. No source, anterior pack. Still no control? Then call ENT and think about posterior packing. Which brings us to our third article, which was titled Short Course Antimicrobial Therapy for Pediatric Community-Acquired Pneumonia, the safer randomized clinical trial out of the JAMA Pediatrics. 
Antibiotic stewardship is going to be everybody's responsibility. And so we should always, always strive to choose the narrowest spectrum antibiotic and use it for the shortest amount of time in order to reduce the rates of resistance development. And you know, it's also nice to minimize the side effects for our patients. Community-acquired pneumonia is usually treated with a 10-day course of amoxicillin. This is first-line treatment, but does it really need to be that long a course of antibiotics? This study was a two-center RCT with 281 children aged 6 months to 10 years with community-acquired pneumonia, comparing the treatment options of 5 days amoxicillin to 10 days of amoxicillin. What they found was no difference in clinical cure rates, which was the primary outcome, at 14 to 21 days in the intention-to-treat group setting the 97.5 lower confidence limit for non-inferiority at negative 7.5%. So both groups were about mid-80s, just about the same for cure rates. In the per-protocol analysis, the results were really quite similar, with an 88.6% cure rate for the 5-day course and a 91% cure rate for the 10-day course. Now, the authors actually went on to do a post-hoc analysis, which was done because the authors decided that fever spikes after antibiotics without any other clinical findings probably wasn't a relevant breach of clinical cure. And so when they reanalyzed with this data instead, this boosted the five-day treatment group up to 93% cure rates, at which was actually better than the 10-day group by almost 3%. So in a spoonful, in outpatient children with community-acquired pneumonia, a five-day course of amoxicillin was non-inferior to treatment for 10 days. And after that, we have the fourth article, which was titled Success and Complications of the Ketamine-Only Intubation Method in the Emergency Department of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. When there's concern for either an anatomically or physiologically difficult airway due to any reason, really, then there may be reason to avoid paralytics in order to sort of back out of that intubation and call for more help if it's needed. Traditionally, these intubations would be done using topical anesthetics and low-dose sedatives. But I hear what you're thinking. You're thinking, what about ketamine? It preserves respiratory drive? What if we just, just use ketamine and skip all the rest? So, to evaluate the success and complications of ketamine-only intubations in the emergency department, 12.5 thousand patients from the NEAR database were included in this analysis. 80 patients were intubated with topical anesthetics alone, and 102 patients were intubated with ketamine alone. The rest just had regular RSI. So the first pass success rate for those groups was 85% for topical anesthetics alone, 61% for ketamine alone, kind of quite a bit lower, and 90% for the RSI group. Comparing just topical anesthetics to ketamine, there was a 13% greater incidence of at least one adverse event if it was a ketamine-only intubation. As our author Aaron points out, an RCT would be the best thing to get to the bottom of this question, because here the sample size was still quite small, and this was only retrospective data. But with such a large difference being found here, you're starting to lose a little bit of equipose. Either way, it's a decent question. In a spoonful, when forgoing paralytics for perceived difficult airways, intubation with ketamine alone had a lower first-pass success rate and more complications than topical anesthetics alone. And so we have the fifth article, which was titled The Comparison of STEMI versus NSTEMI and Occlusion MI versus Non-Occlusion MI, Paradigms of Acute MI, out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. For years and years, we have classified MIs based on their EKG findings, either ST elevation or no ST elevation. But we understand the causes of myocardial infarction so much better than we ever have. And we also have better treatments. So classifying MIs as occlusive or non-occlusive may be a fast-approaching paradigm shift which could disrupt the original dogma of STEMI versus NSTEMI, 
And it could mean that we might have some NSTEMI patients who should be sent to the cath lab more emergently than they typically would have. So this was a retrospective review performed on a cohort of consecutively enrolled patients presenting to a single academic emergency department with symptoms concerning for ACS. Here we had 467 patients who were classified as either having an occlusion MI or a non-occlusion MI. And this was based on angiographically confirmed coronary lesions on cardiac MRI, a highly elevated peak troponin level with new wall motion abnormalities, or a pre-catheter EKG with findings of the STEMI. So the primary outcome was a composite measure of pre-cath cardiac arrest in hospital mortality or discharge to a hospice. And this composite outcome was found to be similar between patients with occlusion MI with STEMI findings as those without STEMI findings, and significantly lower in patients that have non-occlusion MIs. So the problem here was that patients with occlusion MIs without STEMI findings had a mean cath time of 437 minutes, compared to those with occlusion MIs with STEMI findings had a mean cath time of just 41 minutes. The authors hypothesized that having these catheterizations performed earlier in the STEMI-negative occlusion MI group would improve outcomes. So now we have a few caveats, though. So the retrospective criteria that were used to define a STEMI-negative occlusion MI aren't practical to be using in an acute setting. And without STEMI criteria being met, it's not likely that the emergency doctor is going to be the one who's going to make the call whether or not this patient will get cathed or not. That's going to have to be the interventional cardiologist. So with the authors only speculating that they would have better outcomes if they had shorter cath times, it's not going to be enough to change protocols just yet. Future research on this might be enough to push it over the edge, but at the moment we just don't have that. In a spoonful, a paradigm shift towards classification as occlusion MIs rather than the classic SD elevation definition could identify NSTEMI patients who would benefit from an earlier PCI, but that wasn't proven here. And so that ends our articles for this week. Let's do a quick wrap up just to remember everything that we covered. First off, we had our last segment on leadership, how to make a good team. Then a simplified algorithm for epistaxis, a few nice simple steps. After that, it appears to be non-inferior to cut your treatment duration in half when prescribing amoxicillin for community-acquired pneumonia in children, from 10 days down to 5 days. Then from the fourth article, finally, something ketamine just can't do. If you're avoiding paralytics for a difficult intubation, then topical anesthetics had a higher first-pass success rate and were safer than using ketamine alone. And then finally from the last article, STEMIs and NSTEMIs might eventually be replaced by OMIs and NOMIs for occlusion MIs and non-occlusion MIs. This was one more point for occlusion MIs, which might identify NSTEMI patients who would benefit from an earlier PCI, but that wasn't proven in this study. Now then, you've earned them already and we offer them. CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. Links to all the article summaries can be found at the very same place, that's journalfeed.org again. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Another way to get the spoon feeds that's new is also to check us out on Instagram at journalfeedem. Here, our goal is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>